Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, episode number 98. I am Daniel Foch, real estate broker, investor, and most recently partner at Land Bank Advisors. I am Nick Hill, partner at Land Bank Advisors as well. Would you look at that, Dan? Who would have thought? And what it exactly is it we do over at Land Bank? Yeah, I mean, we are now finally a, a fully licensed debt brokerage with a great mortgage broker, and I guess your license is there as well. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and uh, an absolutely kick-ass team behind them of executors who who specialize in capital stack advisory, some family office stuff, which you've heard of us talk uh, on the show here. Um, debt brokerage, private lending, and that is uh, is pretty specifically what we're going to be talking about today. Um, privates, like parts, private parts. What kind of show do you think this is? No, not private parts. Private investigators, private jets, maybe private schools. Private. Uh, those are all cool private things, actually. We do actually have a private island coming up for sale, <laughs> which I'll be listing soon. Um, but those are all wrong. Um, today, we're going to be doing a deep dive on private mortgages, particularly focused on the borrower's perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I'm, I'm just kidding. We are looking at the terms, the rates, the ratios of pri private mortgages, who uses them, when, and why. And of course, you know, we're going to throw in some examples so you get a full understanding. And we got a little history lesson as well. It's funny because I feel like you're like listing like terms, rates, and ratios, but it's almost like the lack thereof for, for private mortgages. But anyway, um, we do also have a very cool announcement near the end of the show, so stick around for that. Um, private mortgages, um, they're, the lenders are private corp corps or individuals who lend out their own money. That can include you know larger groups like MIX. Um, or mortgage investment corporations where money from private investors is pooled to fund mortgages. Yeah, exactly. And mix, you've, you've probably heard us again talk about them on the show before, maybe not in enough detail. A mortgage investment corporation, they pool funds from a large number of private investors to lend that money out as private mortgages. So investors in a MIC earn money through dividends, very similar to a stock. There is a lot more to chat about with MIC, so maybe we'll do a full segment on them and some other alternative and creative financing because we actually have uh, a partner out in Calgary who is uh, an amazing MIC. Yeah, and um, and I think I'm going to do. I think I'm recording something with Simone from um, TCI this Friday about sort of like public market stuff. So Ooh, cool. um, we'll probably cover mix there as well as REITs and talk a lot about the commercial real estate space and what's kind of happening there. And it's actually, I think it's going to be a two part episode. So we'll have like one episode on TCI, the Canadian investor, and then one episode on or one half of the episode on. Um, our show. Um, but I mean, the distinct difference here is that private lenders don't accept deposits from the public. So they're not a bank. Um, and so as a result of that, they're not as, as a non deposit taking institution, like a credit union or a bank, they're not federally or provincially regulated in the way that they can lend those deposits that they don't have to do certain risk mitigation measures that those said institutions would have to do to eliminate systemic risk, not be 
um, irresponsible with with um, with depositor capital because it's investor capital. So a private mortgage is a, a home loan. It's secured against the house, which is what a mortgage is, issued by a lending institution that is not represented by a traditional bank, credit union, or monoline lender. Yeah, exactly, Dan. I mean, this is kind of the staircase of mortgages right here, right? I mean, at the, at the, at the bottom or the top, whatever way you want to look at it, you've got your traditional banks that, that also have things like credit cards and checking accounts and savings accounts. And then the further down you get to that, that private lending, which is either at the top or the bottom of the, of that staircase, there's nothing but, but private lending there. So very specific and borrowers typically only pay interest on these loans. You've heard that term before on the show, interest only, which essentially means you're not paying anything towards the mortgage's principal balance. So remember, a mortgage is based off of two payments, a principal and interest, and those that'll be all visible on your amortization schedule. Now, private mortgages are also typically shorter and come with higher interest rates and other fees, and we'll get into those, but those higher interest rates and fees are different than traditional mortgage lenders, and they are meant to be more for temporary measures before possibly transitioning back to a more traditional mortgage lender. Yeah, I guess sort of what you're describing is like the phenomena of people almost climbing the mortgage ladder. So, you know, there's people climbing the housing mm-hmm. ladder, which is where, you know, they buy their first house and then they build some equity in it and maybe it goes up in value. And then, um, you know, they take the equity from that and go buy another house, they upsize. Um, you know, similar thing kind of happens in, in the mortgage space where, you know, they would take on a, a private or maybe a B lender. And then after one year, they've either got better credit or more equity in the property and, um, or maybe they've stabilized it if it was an investment so that the yield is better and then they can go to a better lender with a cheaper rate, ideally. Um, and in that, in that way, um, private mortgages became popular over the last few years. Um, so probably before the big, you know, run up and, and drop in the Canadian market, it was really a, a way to get to a higher leverage point for a lot of yeah, people totally. to, so they could speculate more aggressively. <laughs> um, and then, you know, after the speculation succeeded, which was happening basically until 2022 with a few exceptions, um, you know, they could now say, okay, I, you know, I got a private at, 90% loan to value or whatever, if they were going crazy behind a, a first position there, then they would try and take that out with bank after the, the property had appreciated in value. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, just going off what you said, some, I think some private mortgage lenders and, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but we're definitely enabling those people to, to leverage, right? I mean, it was, uh, you know, that, that's where the funding came from for, for some of these projects that, that went south. And for some people, for they, sure, yeah, they that shouldn't be in. They had no business investing, and it wasn't even investing; it was speculating. So, anyways, well, like, but but for a long time, it was a win-win for everyone, right? Like, exactly. as long as value is like the U.S. in 07, as long as values were going up, like lender was getting protection, borrower was fine. They got to win because their speculation panned out. Lender panned out because they got taken out after a year um, yeah, pre- by a bank debt or B. Yeah, exactly. And now it's now, I mean, now we have volatility and you saw this happen in 2017. Um, but anyway, I mean, what happened kind of more recently is, you know, with a rising rate environment, rising prices, affordability um, becoming a big problem, A lenders become harder and harder to qualify for. Um, and now B lenders are be getting even more pressure, um, monolines as well. And then it's a ripple effect from A's to B's to privates. 
Yeah, for sure. And it's it's important to remember that that privates do play an important role in the in the Canadian housing market now and and definitely over the last couple of decades. This is based off of data from CMHC. Non-bank lenders originated $183.61 billion worth of mortgage loans in 2021 alone. Now, while close to half of those were from credit unions, there were still 306,000 mortgage loans originated in 2021 by private lenders worth close to $100 billion. Yeah, and it even kept growing after that. This quote is from the Residential Mortgage Industry Report. In the spring of 2023, mortgage activity by non-bank lenders accelerated up until 2022 Q3 and has now reached the pace of mortgage growth in the banking industry. More from that report. So 2022 Q3 to Q4, non-bank mortgage lenders, including credit unions, um, MFCs or mortgage finance companies and um, mortgage investment entities. So that's like mix and other things extended a total of $98 billion worth of mortgage loans, which represents a drop of more than 17% compared to the same period in 2021. And that goes on to say a gradual tightening of mortgage policy over recent years in the regulated segment. So that being the Schedule A banks and so on and so forth. Coupled with the higher interest rate environment, the wind has contributed to the increase in non-bank lending. So let's talk about that, Dan. Why are people using private mortgages, right? We already know that there are higher interest rates, maybe less regulated, sounds some, like some good and bad in there. So there's several reasons, right? And the first one being they are likely simpler and easier than traditional lenders, they fund fast. They fund very quickly. Maybe you need fast financing for a quick close and you don't want to wait for that long approval process. Well, a private mortgage may be for you. Or you've likely been turned down elsewhere, right? Lots of people aren't hitting their GDS and TDS ratios, which are the ratios that you need to hit for the bank to know that you are going to be able to service your debt. And we just released an episode about debt service coverage ratios. There's also flexibility with privates, right? They can be fully open after six months. So you're not paying the breaking fees like you would with the banks where we know that, you know, if you want to break a five-year fixed mortgage, that can that penalty can be so big that it basically doesn't make sense to to break at that point. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that, you know, worth noting that most of these things are really more for the like and and I think some of the problems we've seen in the market is people using privates who shouldn't like if it's your first uh first time and you're using it to like qualify or get in like I, it's really more <laughs> of a high risk credit product and, and a high risk maneuver um and i think when it's abused in that way on both sides um that's when when it leads to trouble um and you see you know sometimes it's a timeline thing right some people just need money for a short time frame and you can get terms, um, you know, quick turnarounds like for con- small construction loans or bridges. You can have mm-hmm. one, two months, right? Um, you know, even for, for short term debt, you can have six months or whatever. Um, if you have a bad credit history and, you know, you think you just need a year to rebuild your credit, as an example, this is one of some of the reasons why you see borrowers doing it because they're turned down by conventional lenders and maybe. Maybe that they had already committed to a deal because we're in a market where everybody's buying firm and and you hear, heard a lot about yeah. this over the last couple of years. People being pushed to do a deal by by a real estate broker who kind of has like a last minute 
trip to Mexico private lender. That they need to pay for? Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, but no, like a last minute uh private mortgage broker will come in at the last second and like save the deal. Well, the like it's like some other hero, yes. but they get this but they get these like putting people in like kind of really sketchy situations. Mm-hmm. But that like, you know, it without the entrapment portion of that, you sometimes people get stuck. They go in on a property firm, market changes, bank doesn't want to fund the deal. Last minute, three days before closing, you know, you're you're Sked a bank decides no we don't like this deal anymore and now you're like okay well i have three days to solve this problem might be a decent application for a private well probably either that or you're getting sued for failing to close um (laughs) you have which sucks um you have a non-confirmable income that is preventing you from getting a, a traditional mortgage so a lot of you know cash job people a lot of people who don't qualify for um you're kind of, I guess, other more like other types of mortgages on the B side where you do like stated income. I guess that's a U.S. term, but like, you know, all of those self-employed mm-hmm. programs, et cetera. Um, maybe people who make money outside of the country. Uh, you want to purchase an unconventional property that a, a regular bank wouldn't qualify for. So basically, whether the deal or you don't fit the box of traditional lenders, typically anything that's kind of non-traditional if you're a non-traditional deal, non-traditional borrower, you probably need a non-traditional lender. Birds of a feather, I think, is a, probably a Nick Hill original quote that should apply Damn, to that. I, I should have said that. Well done, Dan. No, I mean, look, great points. They all make sense. And those are, you know, I mean, those are a lot of situations that people can find. This in. Let's talk about maybe who's like seeking these out and using them, right? And... um Probably the first one that comes to mind and something that we've seen have a, a great success over the years, something that kind of comes with the territory is house flippers. Yeah, like your hard money guys. Your hard money, right? Uh, then mm-hmm. again, we, we see a lot of self-employed people, business owners that again, may not qualify with the B. Maybe they already own too many properties. Maybe they're buying through a corp. Maybe they're you know closing that last minute deal, as you said, and they need a bridge loan just for a couple months. Um, but we see that a lot with private self-employed and business owners. And then of course, again, people that are investing likely, but don't qualify with those normal, more normal, uh, traditional lenders. Um, we see, we see them, you know, flock into the private side as well. Yeah. And I think there are some other components where privates add value for investors, um, investors who are getting into deals that need a quick closing. So they need agility. Maybe, you know, you can get a, a really good deal. Actually, I've been seeing this trend of, I've seen it in a couple of times and I, I, we were mentioning this to a, a buyer that we were out with the other day, you and I, um, multiple deals where the seller took a firm offer that was lower than other offers because those offers had financing conditions. Yeah, so totally. there's like literally a clear liquidity preference in the market or a clear preference for a bird in the hand rather than two in the bush. Um, and so, you know, if you can, if you, if you know, you can kind of go in and not, not that I would consider this advice by, by any means, but I'm just saying, like, I'm just acknowledging a trend in the market. Sometimes there's an advantage to that cash offer. Um, and so that's a, a an example of where a private loan could create value. Yeah, for sure. And and, and I love that you brought that up because I think we're probably going to start seeing a lot more of that, I would suspect, as you know, as there's more and more blood in the water over the next six, twelve, twenty-four months, and we see a certain portion of the population, baby boomers, either liquidating and on downsizing, etc. I think a lot of them are going to be very cash rich. And if they're competing with 
first or second time home buyers that don't have that, you know, loan to value and don't aren't, aren't able to close quickly and don't have that massive chunk of change that you need to essentially go in and buy a million dollar property cash, you know, that that could also maybe exacerbate the problem for millennials and 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 Gen Zs to try to get into the market if if they're being beaten out by these cash buyers. For sure. Yeah, yeah, I think that there's um, there's that element, and then there's also like a little bit of fear around fi- the financing environment, like appraisals coming up short, or you know, I mean, rate volatility. Like, so I, I can get why a seller might have an interest in accepting an offer cash rather than an offer conditional on financing. So, cash offer basically just means an offer that doesn't have a financing condition in this context. Um, so, as soon as the seller signs that offer. The house is sold, let's say. I mean, assuming there's no other conditions. And you show up with a briefcase full of cash. Yeah. Right? Well, no, that's garbage. No, bag I don't think so. Bag, um, <laughs> yeah, deposit, a, a certified deposit check. <laughs> oh, right. Some legitimate right. funds the next day, <laughs> preferably. Yeah. Um, and I think there's other ones like investors, other, other Apple use cases for, for private capital investors building equity into properties. So, mm. you know, in a lot of cases, this, you know, manifests as a, high loan to value position. I mean, there are skilled executors that you and I know who have built massive portfolios by going using private loans to get to a hundred percent loan to value one deal at a time, which is, I mean, again, this kind of goes into that flipper or burr strategy and, and by no means financial advice, because these are really skilled maneuvers. And a lot of these people benefited a lot from market timing, but you know, they would go get a 80% loan to value uh, loan from a regular lender, like a bank or whatever. And then they would put a, a B, or sorry, a private mortgage behind that, a second mortgage behind that up to a hundred percent loan to value. I've heard many cases of that, um, or even higher if they're using the money, you know, if they're getting, um, renovation dollars for it. So they're basically buying the property with no cash, which is everyone's dream. You hear about all these OPM things that we did an episode on other people's money. And we kind of determined that debt is basically the, the true application of, like what I'm describing is almost the true application of other people's money. The equity market doesn't really actually exist. Um, and then basically they would build equity into the property, bring the property up to, let's say it's worth, for ease of math, it was worth $100,000. They borrowed $100,000. Now it's worth $150,000. And now they're at a good leverage point. They can go back to the bank who's in first position and get back up to that 80% loan to value, take all their equity out, pay the private mortgage guy back, and maybe even have a little bit of equity left to go buy another property. Perfect scenario. Doesn't happen that often, but just a hypothetical. Uh, there are a bunch of re- reasons why private borrowing can be a great fit for homeowners and investors. Yeah, no, ex- exactly, Dan. Um, let's just quickly look at the the main pros of, of choosing a private mortgage lender. Uh, because, you know, th- again, they're not for everyone by, by no means, but there are the two major benefits and that, that's the very high level here. That's the qualifying criteria, right? We've already talked about it. Again, if you have poor credit or been, been rejected by traditional lenders, you're self-employed or you're a new immigrant to Canada, a private mortgage lender will likely be much more willing to work with you and offer more flexible lending criteria than your other options. So number one major benefit, the qualifying criteria. The second major qualify or sorry, second major benefit is the fast approval process, right? We just talked about it. It can happen fast and they're not for long duration. So you're not stuck in this mortgage if the deal, if you want your money out or if the deal closes or whatever that subjective situation is, private mortgage lenders in Canada may be able to provide faster turnarounds. They can definitely provide faster turnarounds than we see with more traditional and larger financial institutions. 
Yeah. And this is why it can be great for investors who need money fast to close on a good deal. Again, like, I mean, we've come across opportunities like this. Actually, I purchased one a couple of years ago. Seller just really needed out of the property. Property was not remotely in a condi- in the condition that they could put it on the market. And they kind of approached us and said, look, like we get that we're selling this at, uh, you know, less than we could get to put it on the market, but it's going to cost us like hundreds of thousands of dollars to put it to, you know, it was like kind of like a hoarder ish scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just said like, you know, can you, can you help us? Like we're in a, they were in a, a bit of a bad financial situation and we, and they needed basically a non-refundable deposit to them. So again, like it was an agility thing. We got the, we probably got a hundred K discount on the property because we could do the deal basically immediately. Um, and so agility can create value, especially I would say in the forthcoming markets where you do start to see some of that financial stress rearing its ugly head. Um, a lot of investors are, are, you know, more the full-time real estate types, um, who have that variable income, you know, like your contractors, your realtors, your mortgage brokers, um, the feast and famine guys, the eat what you kill guys. We, We don't meet typical qualifying criteria. Yeah, exactly. So, so let's zoom in on that for a second and, and talk about criteria. Um, that goes both ways for private lenders because they often specialize in certain lending categories and they look at criteria, right? So some examples would include commercial versus residential. So private lenders will generally specialize within one property type, one focus investment strategy, and that could inf- include funding flippers or or mostly flippers of of small multifamilies you know value add investors that could also be like okay you know there's there's guys that specifically fund more obscure stuff like like gas stations or mechanic shops or dry cleaners or or uh, industrial type properties right i mean they're lending on the criteria of of not only you but they're also underwriting that they want to look at the property as well and for them to actually have a great understanding of that they need to have some expertise in that or or at least their broker does whoever is actually brokering that deal whether it's a mic or or whatever they need to have a good understanding of that asset yeah for sure Spe- very specific underwriting um and i mean like a good example of that would be calvert right like exactly. calvert who we've they they do our events with us in in calgary they they focus on flipping and burrs um shout out to jesse and and ryan um at, at Calvert there, but I mean, they're, they're doing exceptionally good stuff in this space. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd be happy to introduce you to them as well for that, that kind of product flipping and, and burr especially. Um, and then, I mean, there are some other stuff like similar to your, your kind of refinance strategies. You see a lot of debt consolidation, you know, versus renovation. Some lenders specialize on the reason that you might be seeking a mortgage loan. And, and it really just comes down to the way that they market. I think that they've all kind of realized that there are different niches or wedges that they can find their way into. Right now, you're seeing like almost these like pick your payment private mortgages where they're like, they'll literally just give you an interest only mortgage at whatever your payment was for people who like are having renewal problems right now. This is like crazy um, kind of products that are evolving in the market. But and, and some lenders may only provide funds to those who are refinancing with the intention of purchasing another property as an example. Yeah. And then, of course, they also have urban areas, rural areas, right? So like some will only look at large urban centers and that's obviously a little more appealing to certain private lenders, right? We know a bunch of them that won't lend outside of Toronto proper or won't lend outside the GTA. But then of course, 
there are major challenges in funding some more unique rural properties, right? You can't really fund a lot of those through traditional channels. So there's also private lenders that specialize in funding, you know, for instance, a site with multiple small Airbnb cabins or something like that, right? It's a question we get all the time. Well, that's really hard to fund. Something like that is really hard to fund through, you know, a CBC, a CIBC, a TD, a BMO or something like that. You have to, I mean, that's a creative property, which again, in turn needs creative financing. Yeah. And I think the other piece is that, you know, these are in a lot of cases, smaller groups and individuals. And so they often prefer the region that they live in. Um, lenders are typically most comfortable investing in an area they live or they understand and they can personally evaluate the property, drive by it, have an understanding of its intrinsic value. It's not always the case. Um, but, you know, especially with, with credit unions, which would be more B side than, than, than private lenders. Um, and I think the other piece is like there is, uh, we kind of mentioned it, touched on it, but like the specialized types of product, like as an example, and this is kind of a teaser of the thing that we were, Uh-oh. I don't really know if I'd call it an announcement today, but you know, something that we've been working on is a, you know, a family office private fund who does a lot of private lending that really wants to specifically get into funding the construction of ADUs or accessory dwelling units and missing middle product. I think a lot of, a lot of, um, these funds and family offices are getting into, they like the missing middle piece because it's kind of found its way into that like sexy ESG, you know, <laughs> I think, right? Like I, it feels I, like it has because it's like not, housing gonna, affordability. We're push it there. We'll force it in. Yeah. I, I, I think I kind of am like making it, try and make, trying to make it that way like that. <laughs> but it does kind of get into that like social category of the ESG as well as environmentally friendly because it is like more environmentally friendly than high rise or low rise. It's like anti sprawl, but anti like whatever the opposite super density um it is like more gentle and environmentally friendly and so anyway um we have a lender who um and guys like send nick a message about this because it's a sweet program they'll literally give you a loan for this i'm just trying to get use this as a really good example um they'll give you a loan construction loan to put a second unit in in one of your buildings um as long as you meet certain loan to value criteria i think it's below 65 percent ltv right now as is so you're um and then the the unit will cost x amount it'll add a certain amount it has to kind of add an appraise out you have to qualify for a takeout loan on the way in i'm probably just confusing people now so i won't get too but this crazy is stuff, on it but basically this is stuff. stuff that we'll walk everyone through we, we we're not just gonna give you the loan yeah. and walk away this is part of what the the product but it's, it's an interesting thing. And they, they had approached us because of oh, well, our audience on the podcast. They're like, oh, you guys probably have a lot of people who want to borrow money to put basement apartments in, right? And we're like, yeah, probably. So again, an example <laughs> of a private lo- lender who you know is willing to lend and basically give you 100% of your construction costs to, to put that type of... Or to put another unit in a in a building, ideally a single family building. But anyway, send Nick a message. What we're going to talk to uh, like a little bit more specifically about it. Um, probably maybe like an entire episode or just kind of like walk people through a case study of what a deal would look like as we start to get those case studies. But this was a whole thing was a response to bill 23 and Toronto legalizing multiplexes and lame and, um, and so, yeah, so we don't even really have like a cradle to grave use case yet, but we've just, just so you're aware, we have a lender who's interested in doing that and using our podcast to deliver, um, to all of you, our listeners take one of, they want to lend you money to, to, to build ADUs. So, um, I think we talked about the pros here. Yeah, why don't uh why don't you walk us through some of the cons of, of private lending, Dan? 
Why are you the pro and I'm the con? Uh, sometimes good cop, bad cop a little bit. Come on. The, uh, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the cons <laughs> of, of choosing a private mortgage, uh, it can be a great option for some borrowers, but there are some drawbacks, um, lack of regulation. This is how you can end up with kind of, uh, um, your loan to own guys, loan sharks you hear about, uh, even like usury, which is like there are usury laws. I think usury laws start at 60%. Um, interest rates so like <laughs> but just nobody's paying yeah but yeah like that's considered usury which is like exploitation of a borrower so private mortgage lenders are not federally regulated uh which means that borrowers have no protection when getting a private mortgage in canada except for the usury laws i guess additional fees so you often see brokerage fees legal fees appraisal fees 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 you're gonna see a lot of fees if you're closing on a, <laughs> on a private deal um and honestly, if you're in the real estate space, I would just say kind of get used to fees because like even if you get into development, you'll if you're doing a private equity deal with like a family office, you're going to see acquisition fee, development fee, this fee, that fee, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's, by the time it just looks like a like a invoice at a fancy restaurant by the time you're done. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I agreed. You know, the thing is, and I think some people don't understand this, is that to to get even just one building built there and you know or or sold or developed or whatever it may be there is a lot of people involved and you know a lot of capital changing hands and and just a lot of stops along that journey so you know th- those fees th- those fees do add up but but you know again if if the if the back end numbers make sense then then the fees are are menial yeah, for sure. Fair enough. Well, and it's just like it's part of the game. It's honestly. part of the game. Like, I mean, you're exactly. seeing it at a, you're seeing it at large scale too. Like, we we've, we've brokered a couple of deals between family offices and and developers, and the, you know, again, you see de- the developer charging a development fee or an acquisition fee or vice versa, the family office charging a capital raising fee or whatever it is. Like, it's just like they all just bake it in, and it comes out at the end when the deal is actually funded. But it's just funny because like they're all. Like they're like, oh, we're gonna split it evenly, and then they just have a contest of who can like put in more fees against one another. It's just I don't know. Anyway, it's hilarious. But so you see it anyway. Like at a small scale, you're gonna see it on private lenders. It's kind of the same thing because a private lender is basically as close as you're gonna get to an equity investor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the next thing would be typically very short term, um, and we're seeing the the consequences of this in a lot of cases where private lenders are refusing to renew from people who bought last year or, you know, because the credit environment's different and the risk is higher or they're, if they're borrowing their money on a HELOC, um, they, they don't want to, they don't want to hold the mortgage anymore because their credit spread is so like they're borrowing at 9% and they're lending you the money at 10 to 15, 12 or whatever. And so what's their incentive? Like take all this risk for 1%. So um, your typical mortgage is 25 to 30 year amortization, whereas privates are typically not amortized and their terms are typically one year at a time. Um, and so after a year, if, if, you're, if your speculative move or your investment thesis was not correct and you're stuck and have to renew with them, you have to pay typically a renewal fee, that high rate again, or you need to replace their loan. And in a lot of cases, they can basically say, I'm not going to renew. And now you're stuck kind of holding the bag or trying to find another. Um, and this is how people get trapped in bad situations where you hear about that kind of stuff. Um, and in that situation, you have the potential to kind of lose your property. They may be quicker to foreclose um, if the borrower is unable to make payments, which can result in in you know bad stuff happening. Yeah, exactly. And and let's talk about those those rates and and payments because 
you know, on, on the low end, like a good private is, is probably sitting around eight and, and they can get all the way up to, to 18. So you're, you're basically looking between eight to 18%. So Dan, so crazy to hear 18, like, cause it's funny, like that's like equity, like you could, there's equity guys with lower expectations than that. This is where like, when everyone's like, Oh, I want to use uh, other people's money. Like it's, it's like, well, you can probably get debt in the same price as equity in some cases. So like why, I mean, if you, if you're really like skilled and smart and should be taking these risks, debt often makes more sense. Cause you don't have to forfeit any, um, share of the property. Yeah. Right. But anyway, yeah, we'll do a, we'll do a calculation. The only other thing I want to mention is like, you know, cause the title might get some people excited about, um, thinking about lending, becoming a lender as a real estate investment strategy. And the only thing like that I would say, we'll probably do a whole thing on actually becoming a private yeah. lender. So like a lender side. But when I talk about like these high loan to value situations or people lending in second position or third position or fourth position, especially people that are doing it with funds from a HELOC or borrowed funds from anywhere. It could be like I've seen stupider places to borrow private money than, uh, than a HELOC, which is crazy. But anyway, <laughs> um, don't, don't, Go in second if you don't have the f- the resources to buy out the loan in first. Because if the borrower defaults and they aren't paying the guy in first, and first goes power of sale, and there's not enough equity to cover the second, you get wiped out. Like you lose all of your money. So private lending is very sophisticated stuff. Well, again, we will do probably bring Johnny on here to talk exactly. like actually about about becoming a private lender. Um, but. That's just one rule of thumb, I would say, if you're going to lend in second. Um, so calculating the interest on a private mortgage. So let's look at the sample. Owner needs 400 grand, 8% interest rate on a two-year term. It's a great, great private deal, actually, from my perspective. Um, calculate the monthly payments and total interest over the term as follows. Monthly payment, 8% at 12 months in a year. Monthly interest rate is 0.66% times 400,000. So their interest, just your monthly interest payment is 26 67 on your $400,000 and over the term. So if you're paying two years, multiply that by 12 months times two years is $64,000 in two years that you would pay in just interest. Um, so at the end of a two year term, the borrower would have made payments totaling $64,000 towards interest. At the end of the two years, the borrower would still owe the lender the full $400,000 principal back. And it's not over yet. Private mortgages, as we had mentioned, include broker fees, setup costs, and those will likely uh, amount to one to three percent of your total mortgage amount. So that if you're borrowing again the four hundred thousand from that example, so let's look at the fees associated with a private loan. So the prime or conventional lender, like a bank or a monoline lender, the broker is paid a commission directly from the lender. So I always tell people this on on one of my first calls, on a kind of discovery call. I'm like, I work for you for free. You don't pay me, but the lender does. So once your loan is secured by, again, let's say TD or RBC, they pay me, you don't. When you're using a private lender, you, the borrower, pay the broker's fee directly. So private loans also incur setup fees, bringing total fees paid again into that one to three percent, more like a two to three percent of the loan amount. The good news is these fees can be financed through the mortgage loan. So let's say you need to borrow that four hundred thousand dollars from the example. 
and therefore can expect fees up to $12,000. That's 3% of $400,000. Now, in order to cover these fees, you would apply for a loan of $412,000 in order to cover those extra costs. So in that scenario, you're saying it, it's getting the fees getting baked in. So you like into the principal amount or like a, that's like a balloon payment or he gets paid at the end or tacked on to the principal. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so are people charging 3% fees? It's crazy. Some, um, yep. Oh, man. Let's talk about the money then, the moolah, the typical amounts. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you you don't see privates below like fifty thousand dollars. It it just doesn't make sense, right? Like the the fees outweigh the point of of doing it. I mean, you know, I never say never. I'm I'm sure there's there's situations out there where that does happen. Usually, we see them. You know, they kind of bulk in between a hundred to two hundred fifty k, and then we see another bulk between like you know four and six hundred. But but we we do see them go all the way up to to one and a half million, and and, and that's kind of where like you know smaller residential and, and small cap investors t- tend to tend to stop with privates, and then we see a whole nother level. And of, you get into like investors. your bigger like mezzanine players, exactly, and stuff like that, which is more like development style private lending mezzanine would be like convertible to equity by the way in event of like so if you fail to pay basically they can become an they can take their debt as equity um i guess um the you know the other piece is like why you don't see them below 50k i think it, it costs like 1500 bucks to register a mortgage with a lawyer right like to like on either end so like that right there is like if you're borrowing 100k that's 3% of your total loan amount, right? Like you're to register a mortgage on title. Maybe it's cheaper, like, but I would say, I think that's kind of your run of the mill legal fees. So if you're, you know, you're paying 3% of the, the amount you're borrowing to the lawyers to register it. And then, you know, another 3% in fees. Cause apparently that's a thing too. <laughs> and then you're paying 10% interest all of a sudden <laughs> you're at like, yeah, I mean, you're at a 10 plus six, right? It just gets out of control pretty quickly. Again, this is why this stuff is like reserved for very sophisticated positions. Um, so I guess let's look at like what criteria these lenders would look at. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, they are very reasonable and I don't want to say the word loose, but but we're using the word tighter here because they have tighter guidelines on other factors and that is to compensate for their added risk. Right. So wait, the the ten plus six doesn't compensate them sufficiently <laughs> for the risk. We're just getting started here. Um, so property type and value. This is arguably the most important factor in being approved by a private lender. The mortgaged property must be in a good enough condition, and will have to undergo a strict appraisal before you get approved. If you have a poor credit score and you're considered a riskier client, and lenders need to ensure that their investment is secure in the case that you default your mortgage. So this is where again you have mortgage investment corps and and other things of that nature that have their own underwriting teams that are experts in underwriting certain types of property right so they'll be able to go in and and look at a potential flip look at the appraisal look at the arv the after repair value and be able to make a very educated decision on whether it's a good idea for them to lend you the money or not yeah, the next piece they would look at is income, just like any other lender is going to look at. You can fall into one of two categories, income they can confirm and income they can't confirm. Confirmable income is preferred, obviously, by any lender. They People like to know that you actually make the money. 
Um, and you know, you prove that through NOAs or pay stubs or whatever, like traditional ways, same as a regular mortgage, just so this would be a scenario in which you, um, probably, it's probably not the income that's your primary reason for borrowing privately. Um, and then also common among self-employed or commission-based employees. Um, and lenders will use an estimate of your income. They'll take t- typically average, you know, the past couple of years, similar to a, a regular lender, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and again, similar to a regular lender, they do want to see down payment, right? Privates, you know, as we said, you can get um, strategic and creative and, and work that loan to value in your favor. But, you know, with the private mortgage lender, the, the kind of standard minimum loan to value, like, the, like in a great case would be 85%, you know, more like 75 and even, even 65% in some cases. Um, if you can afford to put a higher down payment, it's advisable to do so. And a larger down payment means that you have more funds invested in the property. So you have more at stake, which there in turn makes the lender more comfortable. Yeah. And then I think that, you know, that the same thing on uh, as that, but on a purchase or sorry, not on a purchase is, is the equity if you're doing a refi, right? So you talked about down payment on a purchase, same thing as equity on a refinance. If you're refinancing, they may allow you to go up to 85% or sometimes you'll see people doing these smaller loans of, you know, up to 90% in second position or whatever it is. Um, so if the property is 400K, you could refinance up to 340K. Many private lenders prefer maximums of 75 position if they're kind of in first position, like if they're doing the whole loan. But you will see, again, some of those smaller facilities in in second position. But as a general rule, the higher the loan to value, the higher the cost. Um, there are also like, again, we mentioned the deals. Like there's a lot of some deals just won't fund with traditional lenders. Like you can't find a traditional lender to fund certain things. Vacant land is often one of them. Um, marinas, racetracks, rural properties. Yeah, we also see, you know, we run into this on on some of our acquisitions, Dan, is, is properties with multiple pins on it, right? Multiple buildings on it. Maybe one of them wasn't built a code or there was no building permit. Um, properties with, with different zoning types. So uh, a property with a single family home that has a commercial portion to it, right? That, that confuses a lot of traditional lenders. And then, of course, again, random things. And I'm only bringing this up because we're working with a client right now. But for instance, a a funeral home, right? That, that someone's buying or, or for like another great example, we see a lot of church conversions. Uh, you know, I, you, there's some, that story, great story floating around on Instagram about a bunch of young people buying a high school or a public school and turning it into apartment buildings. Um, so really cool conversions like that, that you're taking a more institutional building or, or whatever that is and converting it to residential. Again, that's not something that's understood by a lot of traditional lenders. It's true. And also like construction loans, if, sure. if a lender, you know, if somebody doesn't have any experience building a house or doing a renovation or whatever, like it is a decent application. And, and again, like, like I mentioned before, we have a lender who literally wants to give our listeners this capital to add units to, to buildings. So you have a single family detached house. You've never added a unit to a building before. So you can't prove your track record to a TD or even a credit union or a B lender. Um, a private lender is a good application for that. Um, and, and I mean, we'll probably do a, a full episode on again, that ADU loan that, that we've been approached about. Um, and maybe do you want to just finish us off here with a, with a history lesson, Nick? I thought you'd never ask. Yeah. I, I found some cool stuff. I mean, look, private, private lending and private mortgages. It's, it's one of the oldest forms of financing and business in the world. 
It existed long before there were financial institutions like banks and predates the invention of money even, eventually evolving through ancient history into pawnbrokers providing secured loans using personal property as collateral. Modern day private lending in real estate has increased in popularity for many reasons. For investors, they can find private lending attractive because its passive income can yield significantly higher and more predictable returns than other forms of investing. Now, I just want to finish this up with one little, uh, a few quotes from a really cool study I found that's titled Mortgages in Canadian Wealth Portfolios Between 1870 and 1930. We're going all the way back here, baby. This is by Livio Di Matteo of Lakehead University. Daniel, I'll, I'll read the first paragraph. You want to do the second? I'll finish it off. Sure, sure. Financial innovation via the growth and development of formal financial markets and institutions has been crucial to economic growth and wealth creation since the 1700s in Canada. Indeed, it has been argued that the emergence of industrial society was the direct result of the rise of new forms of saving and lending. However, private mortgages and loans were a common feature of pre-20th century economic life, not only in Canada, but in countries across the world. The land base is funny. Like our country is basically founded on <laughs> mortgage debt. <which> is <laughs> sounds We're not it. stopping yet. A, hey man. Yeah. It's a part of our national, it's a, one of those TV shows that can, this is a Canadian heritage. Yeah. <laughs> land based credit and personal mortgages were a feature of early 19th century Canada and would appear to the practice persisted well into the 20th century in both rural and urban areas. The evidence suggests that private mortgage lending remained a, major personal investment vehicle alongside a growing and diversified formal financial sector. It is funny too, because like, I think that that's how they were convincing people to come like to, to come from Europe to Canada was by giving them big plots of land um, between 1870. And, uh, and that, that was actually the, the ultimate Canadian real estate trade at that point, getting something for $0, your return is literally infinite. But anyway, um, <laughs> between 1870 and 1925, the real, Per capita total financial assets in Canada grew 510% and real per capita GNP grew 171%. In Wentworth County, the real per capita value of mortgages held grew 625%, while Manitoba from 1882 to 1927, same period of time, was 500% growth. Even Thunder Bay saw 18, from the 1890s to 1927 was a 462% increase in private capital, private lending. So the demand for financial assets was robust and the demand for private mortgages as an asset was just as robust. This was a a Canadian heritage moment brought to you by (laughs) Nick and Dan's little podcast. Private lending, I guess, has has just been a thing for here for a long time. It uh, apparently, yeah, a couple hundred years ago, people were loving it as well. Um, Lever up. It's a Canadian way. Um, anyway, I think that's a good episode. Yeah. Um, stay tuned. We got a lot of cool stuff. We got merch. We'll, we'll put a thing in the, uh, in the show notes. Um, we got a, a, a awesome events manager. Um, shout out to Alex, who's going to be helping us grow our event series coast to coast. So we'll be putting, um, some more effort into that and we'll be giving you some awesome news there. Um, merch is just real estate merch.ca, isn't it? But we'll put a link in the show notes. Anything else? Any other housekeeping before we wrap up here? I think we're good to Hit go. Except for ADU loans too. And I don't know. Right. That's it. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice.
Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.